Let us pray. Our most gracious and heavenly Father, pour Your Spirit upon us this day. Enliven our hearts by His presence. And take Your Word and plant it deep within us and water it that it might grow forth into a harvest. That it might grow forth into fruit of good works before You. Enable us, Lord, continually to draw near to our Savior, Jesus Christ. Enable us to lift our eyes toward His cross and to know that the center of all history is there. Because all of history is changed by this Son of God who has become flesh for us. And so direct our eyes continually toward His cross that we might see that He has dealt with our sin. That we might see that He has renewed our hearts through death and resurrection. And grant us to live in Your Son, Jesus Christ. To draw our life from Him. That through us You might work to make Him known. That through us, you might work to accomplish your will throughout this world. All of this we do ask through that very same Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. And the haughtiness of man shall be humbled, and the lofty pride of men shall be brought low, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. My song shall always be of the loving kindness of the Lord. With my mouth will I ever proclaim your faithfulness from one generation to another. The juxtaposition of those two statements in our readings today just struck me, just deeply struck me that as we consider how they almost oppose each other, on one hand, the prophet Isaiah declares that all of our haughtiness will be brought down. The lofty pride of men shall be brought low. And the entire passage is about God leveling everything. He is against the cedars of Lebanon. He is against the oaks of Bashan. He is against the lofty mountains and the uplifted hills. He's against every high tower and every fortified wall. All the ships of Tarshish and against all the beautiful craft. The Lord is against all that stands opposed to Him. And yet, as we finished hearing that very statement that He will bring low and humble haughty men and prideful men, and that He will be exalted above all things, we immediately turn to our Psalter reading, to our Psalm 89.1, where it says, My song shall always be of the loving kindness of the Lord. The loving kindness of the Lord. Such a strange positioning of these readings. On one hand, God is promising to bring judgment against all sin, against all of our haughtiness and all of our pridefulness, all of our idolatry. And as we hear that, we then hear and proclaim that we will always sing of the loving kindness of God with His covenant faithfulness. We'll proclaim it with our mouths from one generation to another. 
And as God promises judgment against all who stand against Him, we turn to look for mercy. We turn to look for that mercy that will be built up forever. And I find in the words of Jesus today a coming together of these two realities of that judgment against all who stand opposed to the work of God and to who God is in His faithfulness and in His perfections and His holiness. And yet, a declaration of His loving kindness, a declaration of His mercy, a declaration of Him being the one that we can turn to, to know that He will always honor us. He will always bring us to Himself as we draw near to Him because He has already drawn near to us. He has made Himself known. He has revealed Himself. And here in the words of Jesus today, we find these two coming together. And it all, I think, making more sense, even in the hardness of these words of Jesus, even in the difficulty of His words before us. We find God at work to bring us to Himself. To redirect our paths away from ourselves and toward Him. To realize those words of Jesus in verse 39 that whoever, loses his, whoever finds His life will lose it and whoever loses His life for My sake shall find it. Now we hear in all of these things that if we are to know life in Jesus. We're going to receive His sword that cuts away the death that is already in us. And if we want to know the life of Jesus, His sword will cut us in half and cut away that which is opposed to Him. He will cut away death itself from us so that we will have His life. So that we will have new life in Him. And it all begins simply with Jesus speaking of not bringing peace. That He is one who is not to bring peace to this earth. I have not come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace but a sword. In many ways, it's almost earth shattering to hear Jesus say that we think of Him so much as the Prince of Peace. We sing of that, the Lord of Lords and Prince of Peace. And yet here He says, I do not come to bring peace, but a sword. And the picture is that of peace being thrown out like a net upon the earth. Being cast upon the earth. He's not coming to cast peace upon this earth, but He is coming to cast a sword down upon it. He has come to bring division. Not necessarily as His primary intention per se, but just by the very fact of Him being there, of Him speaking the words of God, of Him sending out His disciples, there is going to be division. But it's also Jesus setting Himself up as a true prophet. Take a moment and remember those true prophets of the Old Testament. How many of them prophesied peace for people? How many of them declared God is going to give you peace. God is going to be kind and gentle with you in the here and now. Anytime the prophets spoke peace, peace for Jerusalem, it was a lie. 
None of the true prophets proclaimed peace in the here and now. A peace that would pervade the earth. In the here and now, the prophets were focused on the judgment of God. They were focused on God coming and rejecting those who resisted Him and rejected Him and His gracious promises. The people of Israel were constantly in rebellion against God, were they not? They continually rejected His covenant. They continually turned to idols instead of the living God. And so the true prophets spoke against their rejection of the covenant. It was only the false prophets who proclaimed peace that it would be coming upon Israel and that Israel would be lifted up above her enemies in the immediacy, in the immediate now. And that the enemies of God were being routed and crushed right now. Jeremiah 28 is a perfect example of this kind of situation. There was a false prophet named Hananiah. And if you read through Jeremiah, he and Hananiah have a number of back and forths. Hananiah comes before the court and he proclaims that the Lord has broken the back of Babylon. And that because Babylon has been destroyed, has been crushed, the temple vessels that the king of Babylon had seized when he laid siege against Jerusalem years earlier, that they would be returned and that the exiles would return that had been stolen away within two years of this prophecy. At first, I was like, so strange that he could make that prophecy and everyone would believe him. But then it's like, it's the ancient world. They don't have news. They don't have instantaneous knowledge of what's going on in other parts of the world. And so for a prophet to make this proclamation, it's easy to want to believe that kind of proclamation. And Jeremiah refutes him, though. He does say, oh, if only this would be true. I would praise God if this is what he was really doing. And I hope that the Lord might actually make your words come to pass, Hananiah. But judgment is coming. The king of Babylon will come and lay siege against Jerusalem once more for her sins and carry the people away. The true prophets do not prophesy about peace. They prophesy about war, famine, and pestilence. As for the prophet who proclaims peace, we'll know that he is truly a prophet when that peace does arrive. See, the problem was with these prophets proclaiming peace was that they would not challenge the people. They would proclaim God's peace coming to them, Him bringing peace upon this earth with no reference to any change that must take place through conviction from God's law, through repentance and turning from their sins and from the idolatry. They preached peace, but didn't tell the people what was wrong. They didn't tell them why God had been judging them and treating them so harshly. They revealed they refused to reveal the gaping wound that they had within. They refused to speak of its seriousness and would only give them band-aids to cover a wound that needed almost amputation to heal. They would give kind words, but those kind words were not full of the Spirit. They were not full of the true healing that the people needed, which was confrontation because of their sins, because of the rejection of God. And so Jesus, being the true prophet, doesn't come to pe preach peace directly to His people. He brings God's law upon them. He brings the reality of their brokenness like a sword of war upon them. He brings a word that will reveal damage done by sin. 
A word that reveals the damage done to each of us when we remained partnered to sin. He won't let us remain slaves to our sinful desires. He won't let us remain in Egypt anymore. He won't let us believe our lives are supposed to be there. He won't tell us that slavery in Egypt is actually a blessing. He won't tell us to stay in Egypt anymore. He won't say that's what God really wants of you. Just stay where you are. No. He speaks as Yahweh does. He tells them that they are slaves. That they are slaves in Egypt and that we need rescuing from that Egyptian slavery. Which means leaving Egypt behind. Which means walking into a whole new way of life. And it's a life though that is under a God who rescues It is a life that calls forth new life, for it is the life of God Himself healing our wounds placed upon us in Egypt. Healing the wounds of sin and the gaping wound that sin has left in each and every one of us. Jesus preaches to convict us. He preaches a word that will tear us down. He'll preach a word that is like a sword cutting us in slicing us and dividing us. A word that brings change to us so that we can then live out and become the changed people He wants us to be. And so ultimately, Jesus' words don't bring immediate peace to the world. Instead, they bring a division. Because Jesus is going to cut away all who reject Him. And in cutting away those who reject Him, He will bring peace through His death and resurrection. But peace isn't a nice and easy path in life. It's a peace that causes us to have to die. That causes us to have to be changed. That causes us to lose everything in this world that we think is good above God. And what is the example Jesus gives to us in this passage? He points out that He comes to set man against father and daughter against mother. Daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. He says that with His word, a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Which is an allusion to what's happening in the book of Micah. Micah speaks of all the idolatry and all of the hardness of heart in Israel. And he says, put no trust in a neighbor. Have no confidence in a friend. Guard the doors of your mouth from her who lies in your arms. For the son treats the father with contempt. The daughter rises up against her mother. The daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the men of his own house. Jesus lists these words from their context in Micah of the struggles and the sinfulness that are occurring in the world of Israel. That all people are standing against each other. And he looks around and asks, who can I trust? Who can I turn to? And he says in chapter 7, verse 7, But as for me, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. Micah directs his eyes to Yahweh. He looks beyond the conflicts that have been created. The struggles and the fighting that are happening around Him as people are selfish and pursuing their own wants above and beyond everyone else's that needs help. The people become divided against each other. But Micah says, I will look to the Lord. 
I will trust Yahweh. I will rest in Him alone and not in mankind. I will not give my trust to men. And that is what the Lord's sword will do. He will divide people against each other. And in fact, the very words here when He says, I have come to set a man against his father, that word to be set against literally is to divide in two, to cut asunder, to split apart. It'd be like saying, oh, I'm dying of thirst. Well, I'm not literally dying. I'm just really thirsty. So we would say I'm dying of thirst metaphorically, and that's what Jesus does here. He uses this word that is normally used to speak of cutting in half, to speak of how He's going to cut the son off from his father, the daughter off from her mother, the daughter-in-law off from her mother-in-law, because His Word will divide them up. There will be those who believe and those who do not. And that will bring division even in households. That will discover that there are those who stand against us in our own homes because of faith. Because we've gone out to proclaim Jesus. Which then leads Jesus to say in verse 37, in light of that division, in light of that breaking down and that cutting apart because of faith in Jesus, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy. Whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy. Jesus declares that you must give up everything for him. That as he has not come to bring peace but the sword, he will divide us against anything that would stand above God. He desires to cut us away from those attachments and those desires and those wrongful actions, the idolatry that rests in our hearts. He desires to cut that off of us so that we would be worthy, so that we would be made worthy, that we would be healed, that we'd be, we would be renewed by who He is and what He is doing. Jesus isn't calling us to abhor those around us, to despise them and hate them. But He's calling us to that deep-set reminder that He Himself must be lifted up above all else. He Himself is our first and primary commitment in all things. And that's why He says, if you love father or mother more than Me, you are not worthy of Me. Because you are not trusting Me. And He says, take up your cross. Whoever does not take it up is not worthy of Me. And here Jesus isn't talking about those general struggles or sufferings that we encounter in life, but He is speaking of here the struggle that is created by the proclamation of who He is. The struggle created by walking in faith in a world that despises the law of God. This is happening in the midst of Jesus sending out His twelve disciples to do what Jesus has been doing, to proclaim the kingdom, to proclaim healing, to be casting out demons. And so they are intimately connected to Jesus. And thus, they are taking up a cross as they go out and walk the path that Jesus is already walking. Just as Jesus is hated by those who have rejected Him, the disciples will too be hated because they are not rejecting Him. They are clinging to Him, and thus they will suffer in a similar fashion as Jesus suffers. And of course, we have hindsight to look back on this passage Jesus does literally go on to suffer on the cross. He takes up that cross in the ultimate sense that we don't do. We don't die for the sins of the world, but we might one day die for our faithfulness to Jesus. 
And so Jesus takes His cross and dies upon it for our sake and He calls us in light of what He is going to do in this passage to take up our crosses. To set aside all those things that would hinder us from following Him. To set aside all that would distract us. All that would make us not love Jesus. But there's something happening in this passage. As I just said, as he mentions the Father being against the Son and the Son being against the Father, making an allusion to Micah. Micah ended with that statement of, I will trust in the Lord. And here Jesus replaces that trust in the Lord with Himself. He says, whoever doesn't follow after Me, whoever does not take up His cross, whoever loves his mother or father or son or daughter is not worthy of Me. Whoever puts his trust in others is not worthy of me because you're not trusting me because you're supposed to trust me. Micah says he will trust solely in Yahweh, but Jesus tells us to trust in him, to be worthy of him because he is Yahweh in the flesh. He, t- he wants his disciples to be like Micah, forsaking all others in order to follow him. And so he subtly calls them to follow him. To love Him as they love Yahweh. To trust Him as they trust Yahweh. To believe in Him. And he says that whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever finds himself centered on himself, selfishly pursuing his own desires, selfishly chasing after that which will make himself feel better, that person may think he gains life, may think he has found life as he centers everything on himself. But in fact, he will lose it ultimately because the life he has is not real life. Jesus alone is where we find life. Life is not about finding my own life. My life is not about finding myself. It's not having my best self now. It's not somehow actually seeing myself as the greatest person. It's not actualizing my authentic self. That's what the world wants us to do. That's what the secular culture says we need. To just trust in your own heart and follow it wherever it goes. That path is finding life on your own. And that life will be lost. The reality is, I need to see myself as the great problem in the world. As Chesterton answered and replied, what's wrong in this world? And he said, I am. That we see ourselves as being sinful. We see ourselves as being broken people who cause brokenness in other people. That we see that we have no hope in ourselves. That whatever authentic self I could cling to in myself is not truly authentic. My true self is found only in Christ who gives true life. And Jesus says, whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. The world wants us to get in touch with our innermost desires. It wants us to think that our innermost desires are what brings peace. That we can find salvation for ourselves within. The truth is, my innermost desires are kind of like trash. They're wicked and despicable and abhorrent when left to themselves. Without the reshaping work of the Holy Spirit, my innermost desires 
are nothing but sin. Their wanton cruelty, their wanton rebellion against God. And I am powerless to destroy them. I am powerless to walk away from them. And so I have a whole world saying, embrace what you are within. When Jesus says, die to what you are within. Let my word slay that which is inside of you. Let my sword come upon you and cut off that which despises me. Let me divide yourself from yourself. He doesn't come to coddle me. He doesn't come to be nice to me. He comes to put me to death. He comes to cleave me in two that the unbelieving part of me might die. And that's what He wants for all of us now. To cut off that old sinner and to raise to life that new saint. And it's a hard truth to hear that we need to die. And without Jesus, we will die. We will lose whatever life we gain in this world. And that's the intervention of God through Jesus Christ that brings new life. The Lord's Word is a two-edged sword, it says in the book of Hebrews. It will divide bone and marrow, spirit and soul. And that's what Jesus' words are doing this day. As He gives us that picture of division in households, it's a picture of division within ourselves as well. That we must be cut off from that old life, from that old way of Egypt, and be led into that new life in Christ. Because if we keep pursuing that way of Egypt, we will lose whatever life we have in this world. But as we lay down that life and let it die, let it wither on the vine, we become empowered by Jesus Himself to have His life. And what happens when that happens? We see the fulfillment of what Paul speaks of in Romans 6 today. We hear of that new life that if we are baptized into Christ and we have died with Him in order that we might then live, we are called to life because that baptism brings the Word of God against us to put us to death and simultaneously brings the promise of God to raise us to life in Christ. And if we're united to Christ, then we should die to ourselves. We are called to walk in death against ourselves that we might then walk in life with Christ. And the picture of that comes down to us with Jesus' Word that the one who receives Him or receives His disciples will receive Him. And they then will receive the Father. The one who receives a prophet because he is a prophet will get a prophet's reward. You will be rewarded. But not only for receiving a prophet, but if you receive a righteous man, simply because he is righteous, you will get a reward. It's not just special godly people, the highest of the hierarchy that you, ha- that you get a reward for receiving. But even those who are just simply righteous and good and holy. But even more so, Simply serving and loving someone because they are a disciple. Any disciple of Jesus will bring forth the reward of Christ to your life. That as you have cut yourself off from your old way of being and you look to serve the people of God and His disciples, you will be rewarded. You will be filled with blessing. You will be lifted up into the heights of heaven by Jesus. And you will know the new life in you. As you receive that new life, you will walk in it. And as you walk in that new life, you will receive it more and more abundantly. 
And as we receive that new life more and more abundantly, we will joyfully, I pray, receive the cutting sword of the Lord to continue to put to death that old self, to put to death that old man, so that we would rise into new life daily. That that old man would be drowned in the waters of baptism continually. And that out of those waters, we would rise as new saints in Christ. That we would rise with the life of Christ in us. And so Christ brings His Word against us that we might die in order that His Word of promise would then be for us and bring us to life. And so hear this Word of the Lord that Christ doesn't come to bring peace in the immediate moment, but He brings a sword that we would die to ourselves. That His sword would put us to death. And in putting us to death, that just as He died, we too would be raised into new life and find the new life of Christ hidden within that He plants in us by giving us His Spirit. So may we pursue Christ. May we walk after Him and let His sword divide ourselves against ourselves in order that we would then discover new life continually. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.